Welcome everyone to the inaugural podcast for what I'm currently calling Dean's Discussions, for lack of a better term. This will be the inaugural podcast for the subscribers. Today we're joined by three excellent guests, even if I say so myself. We're joined by Ian Davidson. He's a former Scottish Labour and Cooperative MP for Glasgow Southwest, formerly Glasgow Pollock, from 1992 until 2015. He was chair of the Scottish Affairs Committee in the Palace of Westminster. Long-standing Eurosceptic, he is uh, so he supported the UK withdrawal from the EU, uh, and is a, currently an advocate and supporter for Republic, which would seek to replace the head of state with uh, an elected alternative. We're also joined by Susan Dalgetty. She's a Scotsman journalist, author of. The book the spirit of malawi which is an ah an excellent book there and i see she's joined us i can see you now um it's an excellent book it's worth a worth buying i did my master's dissertation on the impact of hiv aids on botswana and economic development so it's always nice to read a book about africa which is about the human stories because i can sometimes become guilty of just seeing it in a, as a land of statistics so She's also a former chief press officer for Jack McConnell when he was first minister, active feminist with the Women Won't Wished movement, and was an Edinburgh City Councillor and deputy leader of the council from 1992 until 1999. And last but certainly not least is Brian Monteith, Scotsman journalist. He's also contributed to City AM and The Evening Standard. He is editor of Think Scotland, where he allows me to sometimes contribute a scribble or two, which is very much appreciated. And he was an MSP and an MEP for the Scottish Conservative and Unionists and the Brexit Party, respectively. These are the three guests who will bless us with an interesting discussion. Um, today, what we're going to discuss is Scotland's, what I'm calling post-truth politics, a land where my values, my lived experience trumps your facts which is a sort of symptom of a postmodern identity politics and it sort of feeds across into lots of different things. So, oh, and before I get started, I've one other thing I forgot to say. With Think Scotland, you can always buy, uh, a, well, for free actually, download from the website or the SNP's Record Good or Bad, a review of the impacts and outcomes of SNP government policy, which is available on the Think Scotland website. I myself am one of the contributors, so definitely feel free to go on the website and download that. It's 68 pages of glorious facts, verifiable empirical facts, which is always nice. So I'll start with a short spiel and then I'll open it up to everyone to jump in and tell me their thoughts. As I'm thinking about Scotland's don't look up political culture that I think we're going through, which is a relatively recent phenomena, I would place particular, though not exclusive, blame on the SNP in government. They will demonstrate a populist instinct when it sits them. During elections, they'll lean into what David Goodhart would call the politics of the somewheres, the voters who are rooted in place and belonging. And as soon as the election's done, They'll lean right away from that and go into postmodern identity politics, which would be, by that I would define it as the critical theories, intersectionality theory, critical race theory, what people call sort of the woke 
ideologies, including the controversies around gender <laughs> as well, which we'll touch on today. So there's this paradox during elections and in between elections with the SNP, which is quite paradoxical and born out of contradictions. Some might say it's, well, it's baked into the cake. I think there are negative consequences for this. Firstly, the constitutional debate. We see a manifestation of a disregard for facts where the SNP's um, Brigadoon Braveheart Ian Blackford will talk about the English will pay for Scottish pensions after independence. A curious claim as if there's actually a pension, physical pensions pot existing somewhere. And on top of that, the pensions would be even more generous, which is in antithesis to the 2014 white paper for independence, which talked about the Scottish government post-independence will become exclusively responsible for those pensions. So there's a U-turn there that's quietly happened that nobody seems to notice and nobody seems to care about, but it's definitely worth commenting on. And I think this kind of fast and loose with rea political reality diminishes our politics. Secondly, the cultural, because I definitely agree with Professor Matthew Goodwin that whilst traditional social economic politics is in the passenger car seat alongside us, what we're really dealing with right now is in the driving seat is cultural cleavages born out of the rise of the SNP, perhaps Brexit as well. And this means when we handle something like the gender recognition reform debate, which is an issue of clashing rights in a liberal democracy, we're no longer handling it with the appropriate level of honesty and delicate understanding for nuance. Instead, we're treated to the verbal, the cult of verbal denunciations. I can think of Patrick Harvey branding Joanne Lamont of Scottish Labour a transphobe for insisting that sex-based rights should be part of the discussion around the hate crime provisions, which I thought was quite amazing. And we've also treated to Nicola Sturgeon brandishing the Women Won't Wished protests, of which Susan was in September there as a speaker, as, quote, not valid, which I think is quite an extraordinary thing, especially since, according to panel base, 67% of Scots oppose allowing bodily male people into female-only spaces, and 71% oppose self-identification. Now, there are legitimate issues on both sides of all of these discussions. It's not a zero-sum game, although our politics has certainly become it. My favourite writer, G.K. Chesterton, um, said that angels dance in the heads of pins because they take themselves lightly. And Oscar Wilde said the Oxford manner is important, i.e. the university manner where we play gracefully with each other's ideas. My contention is after 14 years of the SNP, after the independence referendum and the Brexit referendum, we've lost the capacity to do any of these things. So that's my opening spiel. We'll see whether my guests agree or disagree with some or any of it. So I thought we'd start with the constitutional stuff because we've got two Brexiteers that I know of <laughs> with us here. Maybe Ian's changed his mind, I can't remember. So on the constitutional debate, let's start with Brian. To what extent has the independence referendum represented, like the European referendum after it, uh, an inroad of populism and post-truth politics? Well, 
I think the, uh, the issue around the the impact or maybe the lessons from the Scottish referendum of 2014 uh, into and. Uh, upon the EU referendum of 2016 is that uh, no lessons, first of all, were learnt by the Romain side uh, in that they generally went for the, the, the campaign of, uh, of doom, the campaign of scare <laughs> uh, the fear campaign, and uh, what it to me at least, confirmed was that the approach taken in 2014 by those defending uh, Scotland remaining in the uh, United Kingdom, being one country, uh, had made a grave error. If we go back to the, the years before, the, the situation was that support for independence was only at 28%. Uh, even with an SNP government. But by the time um, that we got to the actual uh, referendum itself, it had moved, uh, as we saw, to 45%. So although it's claimed that it was a win for uh, for the, 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 the Remain side, as it would have been uh, for the No campaign in that referendum, uh, I actually think it came very close to losing it because it just, to me, was not positive enough of a campaign. Uh, I think it conceded too much ground and there was an element of disbelief amongst people who, given a sense of hope of what might be better, uh, uh, were attracted to that hope. Um, so uh, well, before the 2016 campaign, for the referendum came along, and I'm going to have to switch my phone off because someone's desperately trying to get through to me, uh, and they won't take, take no for an answer. Um, the I did warn that going down uh, a road that was only negative um, would be a problem for either side. And uh, my view was that uh, it wasn't just enough to criticise the EU if you were wanting to leave. You actually had to have some hope uh, on offer. And if you were wanting to keep Britain in the EU, you couldn't just actually say how bad everything would be if we left. Um, and I think that what we've had since uh, is that the lesson now learned is um, the lesson now learned is is that the Watching the SNP and what they did after they lost in 2014 and refused effectively to uh, 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 unite the country, to heal the wounds, to uh, the first example of that being not to attend the ceremony that was held in St Giles Kirk um, uh, and to accept the outcome and honour the Edinburgh Agreement. All of that went to the side and they thought, well, we must carry this campaign on. And I think the Remainers uh, in the EU elect, uh, referendum of 2016 have effectively, uh, not all of them, but, but many of them have sought to do the same. Um, and I, I think that's where there are, are similarities. And I think that's where we find that people uh, are still seeking to run the referendum campaign. And to me, that's very much like what's happening now, where people are talking about pensions 
uh, in a way as if there's a referendum campaign. There is no referendum campaign. There is no referendum. And I don't think there will be a referendum. But this is just uh, an attempt to give the, the sense that uh, there is a referendum uh, uh, campaign about to happen. Uh, and these must be discussed. And so to me, me having uh, written about it, I think the, the thing to do is to put these things to bed very quickly and then move on and say, well, but yeah, what can we get back to schools? Can we get back to the health service? Can we get back to transport? Can we get back to justice? Can we get back to drugs? Because there is so much that needs to be done in Scotland. And this talking about pensions is a complete and utter distraction that plays to the SNP agenda. And to me, that is what post-truth is about. It's not about dealing with reality of what everybody else is facing up to in their lives in Scotland, but actually dealing with a, an unreality of some agenda that people want to have and nobody, and the majority of people don't want. I'll stop there. Sound, sound, sounds to me like um, uh, somewhat of an endorsement for what Anna Sarwar is trying to do move the discussion on to health and education and so forth. <laughs> and the well, Scottish Tories seem completely that. uninterested in that. In that. But, but it does sometimes fall into the trap of thinking to do that, he then has to have a swipe at the Conservatives, um, uh, which is odd because the oh, Conservatives uh, aren't saying anything about education, really. They're not really well, saying anything about health. Um, well, I think, you know. <laughs> Ian, I think you wanted to jump in there. That was a wry chuckle. Well, I mean, having a swipe at the, the, the Conservatives is just simply a, a default position to which we naturally respond. But I, I mean, I think that the noticeable thing about the, um, the Scottish referendum was that the facts were almost trumped by emotion. Um, and I think that um, this, the swing towards the SNP, towards separatism, did catch people unawares. Um, I think we had the arguments, we had the rationality on our side. Um, what we didn't anticipate was the extent to which emotion and just straightforward deceit would actually resonate among substantial sections of the electorate. I mean, I, I remember um, standing on the day of the referendum outside the school in Govan, uh, where people were coming along saying that uh, they've been promised that next week, if we they win, then they'll get Norwegian levels of um, pension right away, just bang, automatically. And we pointed out to them, because this is a matter of great interest to them, um, what Norwegian levels of alcohol tax taxation were. And they weren't nearly <laughs> as enthusiastic about that sort of balance, you know, because an idea of where they'd been recruited from. And also, I think that immediately following um, the, the referendum, the the winning side, you know, was overly complacent. Just assumed that that was it. It was put to bed. Whereas the nationalists didn't accept the result. Um, they'd whipped up this emotion. They were therefore able to get their own people out in the next general election. And that's why you know lots of people like myself retired by public demand because we had underestimated the extent to which that emotion. You know, was actually maintained. Mm. There's always a difficulty, I think, in dealing with a situation where you have the status quo versus change, because change can be all things to all people. And it's quite clearly the case that there's a totally mixed bag 
of people in favour of constitutional change, whether it's for the EU or for, for Scotland. And they, they have no, they see no incompatibility between their vision and the vision of others. But where I, I disagree with, with Brian um, is that when he says that we are not in the middle of a referendum campaign. I mean, yes, we are. We quite clearly are. Whether or not there's actually going to be a formal referendum um, is another issue. But, and I personally, I mean, I think that the idea of just always saying no is, is simply untenable. But the, you cannot allow, in my view, uh, one side to get away with making assertions about what would happen in the nirvana of, of a separate Scotland. You have got to tackle that. And it seems to me that one of the ways in which this debate politically has got to be taken forward and what, one of the ways in which we've got to try and combat this, um, you know, this, this almost post-enlightenment politics that we have now yeah. is by facts, is by doing something similar to what the Scottish Affairs Committee did when we had hearings on things like pensions and trident and currency. And you, you establish the truth of the matter, because while it is true, you will never manage to convince those who are emotionally separatist. I think the vast majority of people in Scotland are actually prepared to listen to, to logic and to reason and to argument. And Part of the reason why I'm against separation is that I think it would be economically disastrous. And I think we can win that argument, and I think we've got to continue. And it's all as they have in Belarus. So they don't actually have to take a hold of this, of, you know, the whole country. They don't need to have a strip station. Oh, what's that? Somebody breaking in there. The, but, you see, I, but that doesn't mean to say that I disagree with my dear leader, Anna Sawar. Um, on this or indeed on any other subject, because I think that when he says that we want to turn the focus on things like education, on health and services, that's absolutely right. I, I don't see a contradiction between the two. It is possible to say that the people that are running the existing education service are incompetent. How can you trust them to do the education service? And you can't trust them either to run things going forward. So it seems to me that the two complement each other rather than contradict. Susan, do you want yes. to jump in? I, I would like to wade in gently. I think we've been in a constant state of war since 2014. I think all this, the, the roots of populism uh, stem from 2008 and the crash when people suddenly realised all the institutions, including banks, that they trusted, they could no longer trust. Yeah. And the, 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 the world changed completely in 2007, 2008, and I don't think we understood that properly. I think the referenda 2014 and the Brexit one in 2016, they're binary referenda, so you have to pick a side. And once you've picked that side, that's the side you stay on. And you believe what the leaders of your tribe or your army tell you. It doesn't matter if it's lies, because, well, all politicians tell lies, don't they? And what, what referenda do is they give power to people without power. My husband comes from Stoke-on-Trent. You know, once the most creative working-class city in, in, in the UK, in recent decades you know, one of the poorest communities in the country. Overwhelmingly, people 
voted to leave the European Union, not necessarily because they disagreed with the European Union, but because for the first time in their lives, they had been given power at the ballot box. They knew that their vote the next day would have, have, have a real impact. It's the same in 2014 in Glasgow and in Dundee and in the poorer communities across, urban communities across Scotland. People had power for the first time in their lives and they used it. Mm -hmm. The trouble now is that we're stuck in a political culture that where we're all still at war. Yeah, actually. The real, the real victims are the one in four children in Scotland who are living in poverty. By 2030, it could be 38% of our children living in poverty. But Nicola Sturgeon does not care about that because there is only one objective in her political life, and that is leaving the United Kingdom. I, a couple of points you raised there, Susan, that um, I want to come in on briefly myself. It's very true what you say. I noticed today that whilst in the Daily Record, Nicola Sturgeon's learning how to do TikTok dances for school children, I looked up the number of children in Scotland living in absolute poverty before housing costs. It was 150,000, 2013 to 16. It's now risen to 170,000. But don't worry. And all, of course, all of that happened before the pandemic. But don't worry, Nicola Sturgeon's learning how to do TikTok dances. <laughs> I mean, it's really, and there's no pushback from the journalists at the Daily Record. They don't think to ask her the question about child poverty or food insecurity, but hey. And also, you talked about the binary entrenchment. I looked up the Scottish election study that, that took place after the May elections just been and gone, and it found something quite interesting and hopeful. Whereas there is a slight movement overall from no to yes, than yes to no, which is why it's about 50-50 in the polls, it very interestingly found that people who went from no to yes are less sure than those who went from yes to no. So that's an interesting thing bubbling in the back. There's always hope. Yeah, there's always hope. And that was the election, Scottish election study, which I really enjoy reading. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, I think that actually does play to a particular thing, is, uh, and that is the opinion polling throughout periods when there is no campaign running and there is no uh, uh, referendum or, or election coming up, uh, it's, it's, it's there in the mists of time ahead. Mm. Um, then people people will often find that they're, they're, they can say what they think they might do. And mm. I tend to uh, treat these pol polls with a pinch of salt. Uh, certainly individual polls, I, I, I certainly am willing to consider trends, but what I always uh, tend to believe is that once you get into an election campaign, when you really get people thinking hard and, and, and listening more to the, the, the pros and cons, and, and, uh, and those that often were behind, actually uh, make more uh, sense and have more priority to discuss the campaign, that, that, that it will tend to narrow and sometimes reverse. I never had a doubt that in the Brexit referendum that actually we would vote to leave. I was, I was more confident than Farage, you could say. Um, and and, and I, I felt on the day that's how the result was going to be. Um, and I never felt any doubt either that uh, Scotland would vote to stay in the UK. Although I, I did get a little bit nervous when I was outside the polling station at Peebles uh, and met a few politicians there who were less confident than me. But um, I, I do think there's a difference between what happens now than what happens in uh, the run-up to the actual vote. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and 
So I'm not actually really disagreeing with Ian in saying that there isn't a referendum campaign. I know there's a constant campaign saying we shouldn't give it the dignity of, may, of allowing it to dominate uh, the news agenda. We need to push back on it and constantly raise things such as you've talked about, uh, uh, child poverty and, and, and all the other issues I know both uh, Ian and Susan want to talk about. I think they're far more valid and we must be impressing upon the media to give them that space uh, because that's really what makes a difference to people's lives. The difficulty, of course, with it is that you've got a Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party that, especially in the last Holyrood election, had nothing but a negative proposition. No to independence referendum. And they had nothing positive about it. And it's almost like they play into the constitutional issue to benefit from it because it's, it's, it's allowed the party to rediscover a social vote base. So they don't want to let go of it either. <laughs> and that's quite problematic when the largest opposition party and the governing SNP both love to play on this issue whilst pretending that, oh, shucks, there's so many other things they'd like to talk about. <laughs> but, yeah. So there's that. Now, I'm aware of time and I'm aware Brian needs to jump off um, quite sharpish. So I want to shuffle the conversation along a bit to touch on the GRA issue, because something that I'm th I think about with, in regards to GRA is a lot there, when it comes to identity politics, which is sort of bubbling in the background of all this, when it's my lived experience trumps your empirical evidence. Isn't this the fault? I, the fault of is a bit too. Isn't this an issue within feminism? Because I'm aware that third wave feminism gave gave birth to in 1990s to Kimberly Crenshaw's infamous for some, famous for others, mapping the margins in the Stanford Law Review where she created and she coined the concept of intersectionality theory and sort of move feminism, younger feminism into a more postmodern direction where it's about group identities and how many intersections of victimhood you have. And that's very different and it manifests as a very different language because if I think of second wave feminists, it was about, we're not girls, we're women and we want equal rights under the law. It's about our individual dignities to be equal. Whereas modern, more modern strands of feminism, I don't think it's quite the same. So, and I think that manifests itself around some of the intolerances with the GRA debate, with the horrible term like TERF being thrown around and the demonization of, I mean, the day, I can't believe Suzanne Moore and Jermaine Greer are no longer feminists. When did that happen? I mean, it's really quite extraordinary what we're going through. We've got a female first minister who labels sex-based female concerns around women-only access to refuges. It's not valid to even discuss. So, Susan, jump in on that, please. Hey, well, we don't have enough time to mm. debate what has happened in recent years in feminism, but what I will say is that there is nothing wrong with intersectionality as you, as, as you described it. Uh, as a young feminist, as a young member of on the Women's Committee in Edinburgh in 1992, when we introduced the Zero Tolerance campaign, the first public campaign to uh, on domestic uh, abuse. Uh, we we talked all the time about intersectionality, about how being working class and black and female, it, it, you weren't a victim, you used the word victim, but 
we weren't vi- you weren't victims, but it did mean that your life was all that more difficult. However, what's happened, and I don't know why it's happened. You would have to ask people like Nicola Sturgeon and Engender and other young or not so young feminists who ascribe to this new third or fourth wave. I'm not quite sure which wave we're we're now in. Uh, th- that suddenly our biology, women and girls throughout society have been oppressed by the patriarchy because of how societies react to our biology, okay? And suddenly our biology is no longer relevant. In fact, it's not real, according to uh, some of the more extreme uh, supporters of uh, identity politics. And I some of the conversations that you see or listen to or take part in in Scotland at the moment about being a woman, what it means to be a woman, are, are beyond be, beyond belief. I'll just quote Hadley Freeman, the journalist, the Guardian journalist, one of the best women journalists in the UK and very much a progressive, very much on the soft left. Uh, she wrote a piece in Unheard this week about why she is standing up for uh, women. She said that in the last few years she is hated because of the th- because the things that she knows are scientifically, biologically and factually true. She's hated because she stands up for those truths. And that's that's position. So when I say a woman is a woman and a trans woman is a trans woman but is not a female, Uh, and that you shouldn't be able to self-identify, i.e. you shouldn't be able to change your legal sex simply by standing up and saying, I am no longer Susan Delgetti, a female, I am now Sam Delgetti, a man. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. The First Minister of Scotland says my views are not valid. So that's where we are. I mean, it's it's, objectively, it is crazy. And Ian, the current, our new, the the new Labour leader, those of us living in the UK have to deal with, Keir Starmer, cannot tell us what a woman is. Well, I I um, I'm not here to defend Keir Starmer. I mean, I'm one of the majority of the population. I think that doesn't entirely understand um, what all the debates and the nuances and the detail of this is. But it, but I'm shocked uh, by the amount of vitriol that it's generating. Now I know that. Simply, uh, you know, why don't we all get on together a bit better um, and be nicer to each other is not necessarily, you know, sufficient a response. And I also recognise that most political change is brought about by unreasonable minorities. Um, But nonetheless, I mean, I do find myself quite shocked and appalled by by some of what's going on just now. And, And in those circumstances, I mean, I think the Labour Party is in a, in a very difficult position because it wants to be, um, it doesn't just want to be seen to be, but it wants to be fair to both sides um, because it has sympathies for both sides. But these are two sides, well, one side in particular, which is not prepared to allow house room for the, for the others at all, not prepared to tolerate um, the other view, and I find that a very difficult situation. And I think we are we are going to have to get off the fence, but it's not yet as an issue of a salience 
that requires it to be, you know, front and foreground in our political um, opinioning. And in those circumstances, I think, I suspect we're just going to muddle on for quite a while to come. Well, can, I, can I just come in there for a moment? Because I think we really need to be very clear about what we're arguing about here, what this discussion is about. Under the SNP government's proposals for self-identification, legal your legal sex, whether you're male or female, but I'm a female, so I'll talk for, as, as a woman, your legal sex no longer exists because by if you reform the, the, the current GRA Act, to allow self-identification, that means that any adult over the age of hope, 18, uh, possibly 16, will be able to change their legal sex simply by declaration. Now, if that's not post-truth, and if that doesn't undermine women's sex-based rights that we have fought long and hard for, particularly in the Labour movement, from Equal Pay through to the Equality Act. If that doesn't undermine those rights, then I don't know what does. This is this is this goes to the heart of what it means to be a human being. This is not just, you know, one side shouting at another. Uh, this this is fundamental to who we are as as adult humans. I, yeah, uh, I think it's very important. Yeah, I remember just yesterday, in fact, I was watching Trigonometry, an excellent podcast, um, listening and watching, and it was um, Julie Bindel on it, and she talked about exactly that point where she said, try telling um, a girl going through her first period in Pakistan that anyone can say that biological sex has no role to play and I thought that was a fair point. Now Brian I won't, I'll let you jump in in case you need to jump off soon. Well um, I, 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 I'm befuddled in many respects uh, about this because I, I take the view uh, that these things are fairly clear-cut uh, in respect of um, the way Susan's putting it uh, that you know we are defined uh, um, scientifically as to what we are um, and that the move to uh, remove sex and replace it with gender people are I think in, in uh, when they're asking these polls are they happy for people to do this or do that change this change that they think yes, we need to give people the uh, rights, and they, 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 I think they agree, yeah, yeah. go along with the idea of yeah, yeah. having rights to express their sexuality. But actually, I don't think they are, they really are getting, and I may be patronising. No, you're here, right. But I don't think really they're getting the legal aspects yeah. of what this all means. Yes. And 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 so I I do think that uh, where this to be pushed forward in the debate and, and I hear what uh, Ian's saying that uh, it hasn't been yet and maybe there's no immediate need to. I actually think it's only by pushing forward into the debate that people will then be confronted by what is actually being uh, proposed here. Um, and the difficulty is that every party faces it and for the Conservatives it was always Europe. But but I actually think Labour's difficulty here is um, Keir Starmer's having to hold his party together after it being divided mm -hmm. over mm -hmm. momentum and, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, issues around that. And he's very keen to try and find some unity. And so to go down the road 
of uh, pushing this issue forward risks actually creating another uh, schism. And I think that's really what we're seeing here, him trying to avoid, and that's why he's not taking such a strong view. And and that might be the right part thing for the Labour Party to do. But I'm just saying, I think there's a reason for it. And I think he, he in time, might choose later to push it forward. But I'm, I'm more in the Susan's camp here. I think the way to deal with it is to confront it. But I will have to go because I do have another engagement. To I understand. You, you can you can pop off. We'll continue for another couple of minutes and finish. Nice up. to see you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Brian. I like the beard, Ian. By the way, yeah, Thank yeah, you. it's very Thank impressive. It's my it's it's my uncle Albert um, ah, yeah. beard rather than anything <laughs> else. Yes. Okay. Don't you take care? Right. Thank you, Brian. And it was. Uh, so we'll, we'll continue on um, for a couple more minutes since we've got another minute or two. Um, actually, on what Brian was just saying, I think this, and it comes to a point for, for you, Ian, I think this issue will come to a head very soon. And Labour, Scottish Labour will have to come to a position on it because we, we know the SNP have said, whilst they might water down some aspects of their proposed reforms to GRA, which would be around 18 or 16, which Susan was talking about. They might give ground and leave it at 18. Yeah, they, might. they are determined to push this by the summer. So mm -hmm. this is going to come to a head. And as yes. things stand, it would pass Holyrood, but the Tories would be united against it. The SNP would almost, with, with a small rebellion, would be more or less united for it. Greens are for it. And once again, Labour would be left split. Uh -huh. Well, that's it. I mean, I think the real danger for us is on a, on a major... Um, emotion issue, uh, we end up with the Tories on one side in a clear position, and the Nationalists on another in a clear position, and we are wanting to have our cake and eat it, but actually managing neither at all. I mean, on a personal basis, I, I side towards the Joanne Lamont view of these things, um, and that, but I, I'm not confident um, arguing it because I don't feel I know enough about it. And I also have reservations about arguing these positions as a man, since, you know, the whole trans question doesn't impinge upon me as much um, as it does on, on women. And I recognise that. So I have some hesitation. And you're never entirely clear what your role is in situations of solidarity, whether or not, you know, whether, to be too vocal runs the risk of, of putting yourself forward instead of um, rather than in sport of um, others. But the danger then is if you're silent, then it looks as if you don't have an interest and, and so on and so forth. But yes, I mean, I think that I think you are right. But it comes back to some extent to the, the previous issue um, or issues when we wish this wasn't here. Uh, we would much rather debate about education and health and the record of the SNP and what to, to an old style lefty like myself would be seen as being class issues. Um, rather than than you know the these sort of feelings and emotions and soggy issues, you know. And now I recognise that's that's a that's a sort of time limited, you know, um, to some extent issue. I mean, people who come from my social and political background are dying off faster than the the others are coming through, um, and therefore class issues, class issues. Um, are being supplemented, but it just still seems to me that they are they are the important ones. They are the ones that we should be focusing on, and that's where the truth lies. Actually, you raise an interesting point about why now, 
why is the SNP pushing this now? Because as I've said with the panel based polling, public opinion is staggeringly against the GRA reforms as currently proposed by the SNP. Um, 67% are against bodily males accessing well, women. Well, I, I, think it's, I, mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. Why, I think it's pretty straightforward why, why they're doing it. I mean, they, they have right from the very beginning sought to avoid uh, clashes and confrontations with vocal minorities, particularly minorities that could present themselves as being radical because they, they have this vision um, that they hold forward about Scotland being more progressive than England, but more progressive than the rest of the world, than anybody else. Jock Damson's Bairns, we love everybody. And people that are vocal, well-organised, could potentially cause them any bother at all. They will just tend to take the line of least resistance and go along with them. And, and that's what they're doing now. I mean, they're going along to avoid being attacked by the vocal minority and hope that the majority who are not enthusiastic about what they're proposing will will either not notice or think it's somebody else's fault or an act of God in some way, that, that they, they won't get any of the blame. And I mean, I, you know, is, I, I, yes, would... I, I agree entirely with that. But I disagree when you said earlier that this was a soggy emotional issue. It's not soggy, nor is it emotional, because it gets to the actual heart of equality and class intersectionalism because if you stop people if you if you no longer believe in biological sex then you're erasing 51 percent of the population i.e women who have been oppressed by their biological sex for since humanity since humans first stood up to walk so this this issue gets to the crux of, of equality in Scotland. I am totally in support of trans rights. I'm totally in support of making healthcare uh, uh, easier for people with gender dysphoria. Uh, I, but I am I I will argue vehemently against changing the the current rules where you need a medical check to get a gender recognition certificate that is change your legal sex. And I think the majority of people in Scotland don't actually understand the implications uh, of this because it is so out there. The fact that uh, an 18 year old girl can stick can to declare that she is no longer a female, she's now a man because because she has feelings for other women. And that's what's happening to our young women. Young women are having what they euphemistically describe as top surgery, i.e. they're having their breasts torn from their bodies because, because they're gay and because they're confused about their, their sexual orientation. So they've been convinced that they must be men because they fancy the girl next door. It's heartbreaking. And, if, and, and Nicola Sturgeon does want to appear progressive, not just in Scotland and to the younger members of the SNP, and that's a big part of her constituency on this issue. She wants to appear progressive in Europe, in the UN and in, in other places. But she hasn't thought this through. 
However, given the personality she has, I think it's unlikely that she will change her mind on self-ID. And in the next few weeks, once the bill is published, there is going to be a huge national debate. And we need men, Ian, to speak out as much as we need women. This is not a male-female issue. This is about humanity and it's about equality. And I, th I think it's, yeah, and I, I would pick up on one thing, two things <laughs> Susan said there. Um, the first thing I think it's when approaching this, as Susan just said, quite rightly, it's important to emphasise that we're not, those of us who are more sceptical of the GRA reforms as they're currently proposed, are not <laughs> opposed to reform of GRA law. Far from it. I mean, I'm quite sim very sympathetic to a review of some of the legal loopholes people have to go through to legally change their gender on their certificates and everything. I'm totally sympathetic. Do, I, do you need two doctors? Do you need one doctor? Does it need to be six months of review? I'm totally sympathetic. But as I said, it's an issue of clashing rights in a liberal democracy. So, And I just feel that saying self-identification, it, it pulls the pendulum too far against the legitimate concerns of women in this discussion. Um, Although I would disagree with both of you, I think that for Nicola Sturgeon, there's an element of legacy hunting with all of this. Mm. Jack Connell had the, had the smoking ban and um, the work on uh, anti-sectarianism. Alex Hammond, whether you, you agree with it or not, could point to a gold standard referendum. Donald Jura Parliament. Nicola Sturgeon has baby boxes and rising food insecurity and rising child poverty, you know. So what does she have? And I think this is something that she might have thought, oh, that would be an easy political win. You just pass a law, check the box, job done. Because she is, it seems to me, Nicola Sturgeon is a very skillful politician. She'll smile on cue, she'll do the TikTok videos and everything else. Very good on message discipline, but she's a very poor technocrat in terms of pulling levers of power to obtain outcomes. She's actually, if you look at her record in office, it's pretty conservative. There's not a lot of legislative accomplishments. And I think that's feeding into this cynically. Maybe I'm too cynical about her motives. Well, I think I think just continuing on about an analysis of Nicola Sturgeon, I mean, she's there's never really been an establishment or any um, clearly strong power group that she's challenged in Scotland. And and I think, you know, with an issue like this, it was perhaps, just to follow up your point, seen as being an open goal. I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms before. Um, I mean, I just, I just presumed that she was being pushed into it by a, a vocal and unreasonable minority, and it was just easier to go along with it than to resist it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's definitely true that within the SNP there's a, a faction um, which is very, very keen on GRA. And I don't know how big a faction it is or not, because I know grassroots, based on some polling that I've seen, the SNP grassroots, the membership, small and lowercase n nationalists, are actually really divided on this, which is part and parcel of the beginnings of fragmentation with the mm. Alapa party that's appearing. But that's still very small fry at the moment, but it's maybe a crack emerging over this because I noticed that Sturgeon was very eager to punt the whole GRA issue into the long grass beyond the, la the Scottish elections. That was a very deliberate strategy because I think they know how much more difficult this is likely to be. Yes, yes. 
and particularly now the courts are involved, the decision by the inner house of the court of session last Friday, uh, where for Women Scotland won their appeal about uh, equal representation on public boards. And tomorrow uh, the court will hear the appeal about the census. So if that if that if the government loses that, uh, then you know she she will have to, I would hope, think again about how she frames GRA reform because no one is against reform, good reform that makes people's lives better, but self ID without a medical check will not make anybody's life better. I would argue. Yeah. In fact, it will make women's lives worse. And there was an interesting point you raised that I forgot to come back on quickly. Um, you mentioned about young girls dealing yes. with their sexual yes. orientation. Th there was a brilliant article by Lionel Shriver um, yes. examining this in this exact situation in the Netherlands. And the, one of the people that was telling their personal story was a young boy who couldn't handle being gay, being sexually attracted to men. So he went through the trans process, post-op, realised it was a terrible mistake and he felt he'd been pushed into it and hadn't been given the appropriate support to sort of put a hand in his hand and say, are you sure this is about your wrong, you know, trans yeah, 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 yeah. wrong body, gender dysphoria, or is it about other things? Because I can say for myself, I didn't accept that I was gay until I was in my mid-twenties. I had a very hard time accepting it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah. These are so, and, 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 and young girls, adolescence is a difficult time for young girls. Uh, it's a difficult time for young boys as well, but uh, I'll speak from a woman's point of view. Uh, and and uh, things like anorexia and self-harming, uh, social contagion, particularly on uh, social media. Uh, and now we have uh, young women who believe that they are actually born in the wrong body, that they're actually male. And we have a Scottish government that is encouraging that. And I, f I find that heartbreaking. I have two granddaughters, not quite in adolescence, but, you know, I, I just weep for the young girls who feel they have to bind their breasts mm. because they're really men. And Nicola Sturgeon believes that. Anyway. Mm. Can I tease out a little bit more there? You said um, the Scottish government's encouraging because uh, because we, we, we GRA reform. If you are put as a government, as a politician, as the most powerful figure in the country, Nicola Sturgeon, if you're putting forward legislation that says that you can change your legal sex, i.e., I can stop being a woman and become a man simply by making a self-declaration in front of a notary, then mm. you are encouraging everything that goes with that. Mm. And that is from young adolescents. If, if, if the government of the day says you can change your legal sex simply by declaring it, then if you're a 15-year-old girl who fancies the girl next door, then you might start to think, well, maybe I'm really a man. Because, well, Nicholas says it's okay, I can change my sex, so I must be a man. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, you, you, when politicians make laws, they're not making them in a vacuum, they're changing society. 
sometimes very small changes and other times hugely significant ones. And I think this has the potential to be hugely significant. I think it's, as it's currently framed, it's going to be a bad law and bad laws are worse than no change at all. So I would hope that she, there's enough people, I hope, in her group at the Parliament who, are, who have reservations about this law, about self-ID. I hope that she will consider carefully what she does over the next few weeks. I don't hold out much hope, though. Ian, have you got anything you want to jump in with? or? No, I mean, this is, this is a subject with which possibly to my regret, I mean, I, I've not engaged. I mean, I've just, um, I've left it to others, you know, for reasons that I outlined earlier on. Um, I mean, I'm a bit hesitant about getting involved in something that I don't, I don't have any lived experience in in any in this whole area. And therefore, I'm not sure, I mean, I think often in politics, it's um, difficult just to, to decide to keep quiet, but I decided that that's what I was going to do in this. Well, uh, the, the thing that actually, because I've been holding back, I the first article I actually penned about GRA was actually last week. <laughs> I, I've been holding off on this because it's, well, I'm a man, should I get into it? And also, I know how difficult it is and how much of a potential for backlash, Just why it's always the desire to handle the issue carefully. But what really ticked me off was actually something coming at it from a different angle. I saw that Stonewall, of all places, Stonewall had taken it upon themselves to simply redefine what homosexuality meant in their literature. They went, as I've always understood myself as a gay man, same-sex attraction. They redefined it without anyone noticing to same-gender attraction. And, of course, gender is, according to Stonewall, self-declaration. That is a move that opens me up to accusations of transphobia. If I say, as a gay man, I don't find a man with a female anatomy attractive. Oh, well, you're transphobic. I've yep. been told by people online, oh, well, you need re-educated about what gay means. And there's almost a level of homophobia coming in from the woke crowd over all of this now, which I'd never experienced before. And I just, that's when I thought, well, yeah, I really need to dig into this issue because it's all stemming from this push by a very small, very vocal minority who don't, I don't think, even represent the majority of trans people around mm -hmm. taking the most extreme positions in relation to legitimate concerns over trans rights and issues in society. So that's how I came at it in the end. But it all stems back to where we started this conversation because our politics is now binary, it's tribal, it's populist, and because of social media, and gaming, I would argue, I think there's a lot, particularly in the in 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 the queer culture, gaming uh, it, it plays a big part in how people view themselves. People no longer think that they're human, let alone male or female. Uh, they're an avatar. So I I, I think we're we're go, we're we're coming through a revolution in politics, which people like Ian and I, who are you know slightly older than 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 uh, some of the everybody else <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> changed and is changing and it, it uh, it's populist and uh, it's driven on, on social media mm. And, mm. 
And until we come to terms with that, then I think... Uh, well, well, that's right. That's right. But, that, but coming back to the point um, that I was making at the very beginning about, you know, fighting back with facts, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I, I think actually, you see, even, even people that emote about separatism and, and, you know, they'd rather live in a cave and eat grass um, yeah. in order that Scotland would be free <laughs> sort of thing. I mean, they, they, are not, they are not the majority and they are not typical. And I think that there is still a big market for, for people prepared to listen to sort of facts on things like, you know, pensions, currency, these sorts of issues. Um, and I, I also think um, that there is a, a, a reason for us to start making sure that the sort of vitriol that's in politics today, I mean, is owned by those who are benefiting from it. It's always the bit about who profits. I mean, who is profiting from most of the vitriol around separatism is obviously, you know, Nicholas Sturgeon and Ian Blackford with his record, or, you know, dealing with people like Charlie Kennedy and so on, but Alec and Kenny McCaskill. I mean, and, 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 and some of these people, like Kenny McCaskill, see themselves as being immensely progressive and on the left and radical and all the rest of it. And, you know, they would want to run a mile, in theory at least, from um, some of the bitterness and, as I say, vitriol. But they're, they need to be made to own it and say and told that, look, you, you are responsible for this. You could deal with this. Um, how many people have you expelled from your parties for this, this sort of behaviour? And if not, why not? And I, I think that, you know, there are things that we can do to roll back this tide of sliding into to treating everybody like avatars and, and so on. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think I think I don't think it's hopeless and I don't think the values that I grew up with and the sort of, you know, the, the values, not just simply about individualism, about collectivism, about not just rights, but also responsibilities mm -hmm. uh, need to be reasserted and are not sort of dead and gone forever. Yeah. And I'll just I'll just finish on this because you 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 you've given me the hook. What's happened in the women's movement in Scotland over the last two to three years, uh, Sarah Pedersen, uh, an academic uh, up in Aberdeen, has just published a paper about the cooperative constellation, the Velvet Triangle, the coming together of grassroots women with women journalists, with women uh, artists, with politicians, informally and increasingly more formally to campaign against self-ID on GRA. So there has been a resurgence of the women's movement, which Joanne is, is a big part of because of this one issue. But I'm hoping that that will lead to other issues being explored because women and girls are still oppressed by the patriarchy, to use the old second wave. A, a, a language so that yes you're absolutely right there is hope we need to use all the platforms available to us but we need to campaign on facts and evidence because the truth still holds true excellent i agree with you and i agree with me Excellent. And on that happy note, I think you should call it time. <laughs> We're all in agreement. Right. So, Susan Dalgetty, Ian Davidson and uh, Brian Monteith, thank you very much.
for and, and thank you to Ian's cat as well. And thank you to the cat Louis. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful cat. Thank you. It is a lovely Bye. thing. Thank Bye. you very much. Bye.